combines over a couple days some events that occurred over over about a year or two. But uh, I won't go into details, but it does have um, it's done spot. Near, near the end, it talks about the coming years and the achieved greater power and what was in the Soviet Union. And it says at the end, it says till basically 1964, he was removed from power. And he was closing with, he's sitting at a, in a theater, and you know, it's like me and Nick better old enough to tell us who it was. But the guy behind him, back behind him, is a dark haired, young, you know, fresh. And a lot of historians believe Khrushchev was over power. Partly there was a plot against him, but he went off to um, to his cabin or whatever his retreat was in the mountains and didn't deal with the threat, so he didn't take the action that that would might have prevented his being removed from power. And in history, there are a lot of cases of people who. Um, who may have lost their lives or been removed from power leaders, who um, think of Julius Caesar, um, not always killed, but Margaret Thatcher, um, who was considered Thatcher been the, the most successful British Prime Minister since, since Churchill, although um, she was removed, wasn't voted out of office, her own, the insiders her own party basically plotted against her. She didn't take the threat. Seriously, other people unfortunately lost their lives in Mexico. Probably two of the great revolutionary leaders, Pocho Villa and Emilio Zapata, were both, they both, both met their end because they were basically betrayed from within and they didn't see the threat there. So whether it's a threat, and there's other cases in history, but whether it's a threat, it doesn't be political, or a serious situation, sometimes situations call for action. We have to see the need for that. A lot of people now are experts. 2008, the mortgage meltdown, the Great Recession, we clearly need to do such and such, although I don't know how many of those people actually were doing those things or called for that well after fact. You know, they say hindsight is 2020. I just knew that you were influencing. I just knew that would happen. But the next time really impressed me only before. But there are times that um, call for action not necessarily a political threat or a threat to your life, but there are serious situations that call for action. One of those is what Shimon Kefa, also known as Simon Peter, talks about in his first epistle. Now here is a, um, imagine, now this is a theoretical situation. Imagine a country, it's a difficult time in that country's history, a time when action is called for. The president of this country gives us, or the king or the prime minister, wherever you may be, gives a special address to the people, televised, of course. The president or whatever leader spent, spends 20 minutes dramatically documenting the fact that the country is in a serious state and that action is clearly called for. Think of that situation. What would we think of such a leader, assuming that their diagnosis of the state of affairs is correct? Assuming it's correct, it's accurate. What would we think of them if they said action is called for? But they proceed by calling upon their fellow citizens to simply rest secure in the superior status of your country, Um, its constitution, its founding fathers, um, and your country's exceptionality. 
or whatever terminology you want to use. What would we think of that? A leader who said, documented there was a call for, there was a need for action, then said, but let's rest in our laurels. Let's rest in our superior status. Well, just as we wouldn't respect such a passive leader, passive president, we wouldn't respect a passive shaliach. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't expect Shimon Kepha writing to first century messianic Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire, which was a serious situation indeed. We wouldn't expect him to call upon those Jewish believers to be passive. We would expect Shimon Kepha to call upon messianic Jews to be men and women of action. That's what he does in the first, first chapter of his, the first chapter of his first epistle. So it's First Kepha or First Peter, one thirteen. In one thirteen, it says, "Therefore, get your minds ready for work, keep yourselves under control, and fix your hopes fully on the gift you will receive when Yeshua, the Messiah, is revealed." This therefore, because he's saying therefore, what he's. Uh, and this therefore, it's coming upon the heels of the previous verses. Where Kepha's writing about, which he had wrote about previously, the, the unspeakable joy that Messianic Jews experience as part of trusting in Messiah Yeshua. And about the prophetic and angelic anticipation, which the workings of God encourage. Kepha instructs, his, instructs us. To prepare for action. To prepare for action by doing three things. First, we are to gird our minds, or in in the Jewish New Testament puts it, get your minds ready for work. Rabbi Stern expounds upon this verse by pointing out, we are to be mentally prepared for opposition. Distractions, temptations, and unexpected setbacks. The second thing we need in order to prepare for action, is sobriety. Keep yourselves under control refers primarily to abstinence from wine. But there's much more to it than not overdoing it. I mean, I can enjoy a glass of wine or vodka. The, the whiskey keep for yourself. But, um, but it's, sobriety is more than just, just, just be, having restraint and not overdoing it when you have a drink of of alcohol. We must be morally alert and sober in our speech and in our conduct in our conduct. So sober in speech and conduct. Over drinking is intoxication. It's a no no. Over drinking is a no no, but any physical or mental intoxication or addiction which restrains our spiritual alertness is also off limits. Some things, we see that with technology these days. A lot of the gadgets we have, they can be great. They can be great, what? They can be great tools. They can be great to serve us, but they make very poor masters. Very poor things to be enslaved to. The third thing we need is to prepare for action. So so. We prepare for action. The third thing we need to prepare for action, it says to, literally, to hope in grace. There's a rich tradition in Judaism of grace, of the gift of divine favor. Upon this gift, we are to hope completely. We are to hope 
in the future. But Shimon Kepha is not, when he says, put your hopes fully on the gift you will receive when Yeshua the Messiah is revealed. He is not, absolutely not, encouraging us to use eschatology or whatever our view of the end times is as some sort of narcotic to drown our sorrows in. I mean, that's, that's not sobriety. We're not to fly off into fantasies about how things are going to turn out end times or it'll turn out the way I'm saying, just you wait and see. So in flying off into fantasies in an attempt to escape the reality of the here and now. Rather, we're to mold our present actions. We mold our present actions in the light of future goals and an unseen reality. That unseen reality is the gift, as it says, the gift you will receive when Yeshua the Messiah is revealed. How do Messianic Jews prepare for action? We gird our minds, are fully sober, and hope completely in the grace of God. As we prepare for action, we should realize that we have been bred for action, raised for this. In verse 14, Shimon Kepha says, As people who obey God, do not let yourselves be shaped by the evil desires you have, excuse me, you used to have when you were still ignorant. This verse includes both a negative and a positive. First, the positive. We're to be people who obey God. The positive. We're to people who obey God, literally children of obedience. This is a stronger statement than calling us children of God who are obedient. It is as if obedience is our mother. The significance of being children of obedience is especially apparent when we consider the opposite of that. In Ephesians 2.2, Rav Shaul says, Ephesians 2.2, You walked in the ways of the Olam Hazeh, this world, and obeyed the ruler of the powers of the air who is still at work among the disobedient. So, in the past... The opposite of this is walking in the ways of this world, obeying the ruler of the powers of the air, not God. In both of these verses, sorry, in verse 5, 6, I meant also to read, um, which I don't have with me. I meant, I forgot. Well, in 2, 2 and 5, 6, I apologize, I didn't have this written down here. In both of these verses, a literal rendering will call us sons of disobedience. So you can have an insult. Some people say, you son of a, whatever, son of disobedience. Another important passage is Isaiah 57.4. Whom are you making fun of? And whom are you laughing and sticking out your tongue? Aren't you rebellious children, just a brood of liars? So we see how your, your descent, they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We can appreciate being children of obedience, especially when we see the seriousness of being children of disobedience, the opposite, children of sin. It's God's will that we be children of obedience. But there's a negative side to this verse also. We're told what we are not to be. As children of obedience, Kepha says, do not, do not let yourselves be shaped by the evil desires you used to have when you were still ignorant. Kepha knows that Messianic Jews had former desires when they were ignorant of Messiah Yeshua. 
these former desires are not necessarily rendered impotent by spiritual rebirth. Being born of the Spirit does not does not nullify any old tendencies, all old tendencies and desires and temptations. The Messianic Jews cannot plead ignorance. The former desires are no longer our guide. Romans 12.2 says, In other words, do not let yourselves be conformed to the standards of Olam Hazeh, which is again this world. Instead, keep letting yourselves be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you will know what God wants, and will agree that what he wants is good, satisfying, and able to succeed. If, as some commentators believe, a large portion of Shimon Kepha's audience were Gentile converts to Judaism, thus born into paganism, the former desires and ignorance could be even more undesirable, even more worthy of avoidance as a guide for lifestyle. Ephesians 4, 17 and 18 say, Therefore, I say this indeed, in union with the Lord, I insist on it. Do not live any longer as the pagans live, with their sterile ways of thinking. Their intelligence has been shrouded in darkness, and they are estranged from the life of God because of the ignorance in them, which in turn comes from resisting God's will. So we may be tempted to do what might seem to be natural, but the natural, the natural may actually be a way of ignorance. Judaism has a long tradition of learning, and in accordance with that tradition, let's live as people of Hashem, as children of obedience. So may God's will be our standard, not, not carnal, not earthly ignorance. So we prepare for action, living as people bred for action, and it's fine to say that, it's, that God's will is our standard, but we need a model for action. In verses 15 and 16 of First Kepha chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, it says, On the contrary, follow the Holy One who called you. Become holy yourselves in your entire way of life. Since the Tanakh says, you are to be holy because I am holy. These verses tell us, among other things, that our caller, the one who called us, is holy. And that our caller, caller is the model for action. We have in verse 15 a strong contrast. He says, on the contrary, following the holy one who called you. This is in contrast to our former desires, our ignorance, which Kepha told us to avoid as a moral guide. God has called us to a better way. In Isaiah 35, 8, it says, A highway will be there, a way called the way of holiness. The unclean will not pass over it, but it will be for those whom he guides. Fools will not stray on it. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 says, For God did not call us to live an unclean life, but a holy one. So we have the way. We talk about the halakha. We have the way, the path for us to walk. Many of us behave as though we have been called to a life of spiritual lethargy, sometimes at least. Hopefully not that often. But there is a sense of messianic rest, of course. There definitely is a sense of messianic rest, and there should be. But we have been called by a holy one, and he has called us to action. In first Yochanan, the first epistle Yochanan, three three, it says, And everyone 
who has this hope in him continues purifying himself since God is pure. This divinely ordained action may seem like a formidable task. And it is a formidable task. But we have the best model for action that one could hope for. The Holy One of Yisrael. Our model in all areas of ethical behavior. Many people who call themselves followers of Messiah Yeshua take an approach I say many, I mean more than there should be. Take an approach which basically says that we're all sinners and that Yeshua died for us. And of course, this is true, absolutely. But that approach, ethically speaking, often seems to imply that out of gratitude for his grace, we ought to give it the old college try. Give it the old college try, and even though we'll never amount to anything more than hypocrites, hopefully in heaven God will give us an E for effort for our lifestyle. But Hashem desires more of us. He desires more from us than the old college try. Humility is fine, but is not meant to be an excuse to avoid living lives that reflect the holiness of God. Sometimes you might hear people say, well, and it's good to want to be holy, but, you know, I mean, um, who am I to judge? You know, there's the speck in my eye, but not in the sense of I'm going to improve myself, pray to God improve me so that I can better serve others, but, you know, I'm, I'm false so short that I can never, I can never help anyone else. So the, the myth of perpetual log, it's to remove the log in your eye so that you can better help someone else with a speck in their eye, not say, well, it's always there, therefore, how can I help anyone else? Hashem desires more from us. Humility is fine, but it is not meant to be an excuse to avoid living lives that reflect the holiness of God. The, um, read a short section. This is from the book, The Abandonment of the Jews which relates to the America and the Holocaust, 1941 through 1945. It, has, it talks about the, um, mainly the United States, but also many of the other allied powers during World War II. And the action, or the inaction, which, could, which led to not saving people who could have been saved. He says, this book has been difficult to... This is David S. Wyman who wrote the book. Um, This has been difficult to research and to write. One does not wish to believe the facts revealed by the documents on which it is based. America, the land of refuge, offered little little succor. Succor. How do you say S-U-C-C-O-R? Succor. Succor. Okay. One's born every minute, but... um, Offered little that. American Christians forgot about the Good Samaritan... Even American Jews lacked the unquestionable sense of urgency the crisis demanded. The Nazis were the murderers, but we were all too passive accomplices. Between June of 1941 and May of 1945, five to six million Jews perished at the hands of the Nazis and their collaborators. Germany's control, and of course many others, at least some of the camps, many others not Jewish died. Germany's control over most of Europe meant that even a determined Allied rescue campaign probably could not have saved as many as uh, not could not have saved as many as a third of those who died. But a substantial commitment to rescue almost certainly could have saved several hundred thousand of them and done so without compromising the war effort. 
The record clearly shows, though, that such a campaign would have taken place only if the United States had seized the initiative for it. But America did not act at all until late in the war, and even then, though it had some success, the effort was a very limited one. Daniel says, I have written not as an insider. I am a Christian, a Protestant of Yankee and Swedish descent, but I have advocated a Jewish state for a very long time, and I would undoubtedly have backed the Zionist movement during the World War II era had I been old enough to be involved in political affairs. Today I remain strongly pro-Zionist, and I am resolute supporter of the state of Israel. My commitment to Zionism and to Israel has been confirmed and increased by years of study of the Holocaust. I look upon Israel as the most important line of defense against anti-Semitism in the world. Had there been a Jewish state in the 1933 to 1945 era, it would have been much less painful today for all of us to confront the history of European Jewry during World War II. A final comment, then a question. The Holocaust was certainly a Jewish tragedy, but it was not only a Jewish tragedy, it was also a Christian tragedy, a tragedy for Western civilization and a tragedy for all humankind. The killing was done by people to other people while still other people stood by. The perpetrators, where they were not actually Christians, arose from a Christian culture. The bystanders most capable of helping were Christians. The point should have been obvious, yet comparatively few American non-Jews reacted, uh, recognized that the plight of the European Jews was their plight too. Most were either unaware, did not care, or saw the European Jewish catastrophe as a Jewish problem, one for Jews to deal with. That explains in part why the United States did so little to help. And it doesn't mention this quote, but he also documents how a lot of the communal Jewish leadership in the United States at the time did, had influence over the administration, but um, did far too little for what they could have done to save more of European Jewry. Would the reaction be different today, he asks. Would Americans be more sensitive, less self-centered, more willing to make sacrifices, less afraid of differences now than they were then? Now, we may not, we don't face, obviously, an identical situation that today. But on what basis could we expect to be better? On what basis could we expect that we would be better than was the case during World War II? Could we rely upon our own moral superiority, superior technology, an alleged ability to learn from our mistakes? Maybe our response would be better. I hope it would be. But would it be because we rely upon moral superiority, because of superior technology, because of an, an ability to learn from our mistakes? Or would, will, if it does happen, or would we rely upon a superior model for action because of we have the superior model, the Holy One of Israel. Verse 16, the last verse read, where it says, Since the Tanakh says, you are to be holy because I am holy. Verse 16, you are holy, be holy because I am holy. One of my professors in graduate school put it, put it pretty well. He said that followers of Yeshua should delight in imitating God because he is their father, Avinu Malkinu, our father, our king. Because his moral excellence is inherently beautiful and desirable. To be like him is the best way to be. And so when we are called for lives of actions, action, it is not because of our superiority. It is because of 
we are striving to be like the Holy One of Israel. To be like Him is the best way to be. And that I would say, Baruch Hashem and Amen. Cantor Vedder, is he here?